Good morning and welcome to the latest edition of State of Emergency. I'm Peter Schorsch. I'm starting out my day with my two favorite Jews, Jesus and Jared Moskowitz. I just got back from Mass. Jared, how are you? Good. I'm just curious. Am, am I two or am I one? I mean, listen, if I'm losing to Jesus, it's not really a loss in my mind. <laughs> You're a strong number two. Strong number two. I'll take it. Uh, no problem. We've got a great pod today. We're going to talk about, you know, 8,000 things. We have a commitment to try and get this done inside of 45 minutes. We say that every pod, it's almost, it's almost laughable, but we're going to do it. We have a really cool guest coming on, uh, Nate Monroe uh, of the Florida Times Union, one of my favorite writers in Florida. Um, we're going to start real quick. Jared, as we're talking right now, there is a state of emergency in two other states among other, beyond just what's going on in Louisiana, uh, overnight, New York and New Jersey, eight people are dead inside of the New York City area because of uh, torrential uh, flooding there. Um, we, we think about those folks, but I guess my first question to you is, are we just living in a perpetual state of emergency, at least here in Florida and maybe throughout the country because of climate change, et cetera? Uh, listen, Peter, I, I feel like someone's playing the ultimate game of Jumanji with us. And, and it's just a matter of time until animals are running around in the streets. Uh, <laughs> a Category 4 hurricane hit Louisiana, a million people without power. They're pulling cows out of trees. And if you look at the images coming out of New York and New Jersey, unbelievable, massive tornadoes in New Jersey, epic flooding in New York, the first flash flood emergency in New York City in the history of the city. Uh, and so Ida obviously is going to be one for the record books, uh, but it really does feel that the last couple of years, really since the pandemic started, that we're in this perpetual state of emergency. And what does that now mean for us as a culture? By the way, let's not forget about the fires that have been in California and in Oregon and now that are raging by Lake Tahoe. Uh, and what does that mean mentally if we're in this perpetual state of emergency? Hopefully it means this podcast was ahead of its time. <laughs> well, we know that, um, you know, I look, uh, so many people are talking about that it is climate related and I look outside of my house. We live on the water here in St. Petersburg. It floods here at two in the afternoon on a sunny day. You know, the high tide is no longer high tide, it's high flooding. And it, it floods out the streets in Shore Acres, uh, St. Petersburg. And, you know, like I'm looking at around at the people who are building houses here, um, you can no longer build on the on the first level. Like you can't have like a regular house. You got to build, you know, that's basically your garage. And then you can start your house on the second and third floor. People are still moving here. People are still building on the water. Um, I, I wonder if they're just, I, I wonder if my house is going to be here in, in 10 years. Um, it's just, it's crazy to think about that. Um, from a personnel perspective, what does it do? Like, I don't believe that we saw Craig Fugate all the time 10, 15 years ago. Um, what does it do in terms of like, how do you, how as a leader, do you keep everybody operating at fifth gear if you are a state emergency uh, management director like you were? Well, I mean, listen, let's just be honest. There's, there's burnout, right? I mean, so if you look at the Trump administration, uh, they had two uh, FEMA administrators in four years. Each one did two years. And if we forget, there were a lot of disasters, not just the Trump administration in general, but there were a lot of disasters during the Trump administration. Uh, and so, 
you know, right now, the new FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, who is literally, you know, nine months, less than that, because she didn't start in January, seven, eight, seven, eight months on the job. Uh, and she's already dealing with some of the biggest disasters in American history. Uh, you know, she's not going to be an eight year like Craig Fugate was. She won't be six years like Craig Fugate because she's going to burn out. And then that trickles all the way down. Since I was director, okay, uh, in the six months of my last term plus the three months since I've been gone, so call it nine months, in nine months, we've lost 40 people at the Division of Emergency Management. Wow. And it's not it's not easy to replace people in state government when they get paid like crap, by the way. Uh, and so this is not just something that's happening in Florida. It's happening in the cities and the counties at their emergency management departments. And by the way, ask us what our recruitment is. I mean, it's not easy to recruit people into these jobs. Um, OK, we are going to we're going to bring on our guest in a moment. We'll take a break right now, pay some bills which is a new phenomenon for us. Don't get too excited, Jared. We, we're, we're not in the profit level yet. Um, you know, as soon as that happens, I'll cut you in on your, on your uh, end of this business. But take a, we're going to pop out, and then we'll be back with Nate Monroe. Okay, we are back. Uh, joining us now, um, I guess he's going to be excited about the big, uh, New Orleans Saints Green Bay Packers game coming his way uh, in a week or so. Nate, Nate Monroe of the Florida Times Union. Uh, he is a columnist there. I, I'm just going to brag on him. He was on our Influence 100 um, last year because I, I just feel like um, he probably dominates his, his market as well as any columnist does. Uh, there's a lot of news out of Jacksonville. He is, an, is a hell of a writer. Um, and so if you're not following him, you should, um, and you should be reading his columns. He goes, you know, he talks about obviously governor Ron DeSantis, but then he drills down on the local issues facing Florida's biggest city. So he is, he is just one of the great Metro columnists in an era when we really don't have one of those. So good morning, Nate. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for that. Uh, just very overly kind, uh, introduction. Well, I mean, I said that Jared's my second favorite Jew after Jesus, so I had to I had to bring you in pretty good too. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, Jared, you guys, you guys. I'm going to make a shirt, other. Peter, that says that. I'm going to second <laughs> top top Jew other than Jesus. That's going to be the shirt. Do you guys? Do you guys have you guys ever interacted? I don't think we have. No, this Jared, is the, no, this is this is the first. Okay, well, you guys are uh, you guys are you both are big. I think you guys both have big takes on Ron DeSantis, and so I wanted to start there. We broke some news earlier this week that Adrian Lucas, his chief of staff, is uh, is soon uh, exiting, probably in mid September. Um, he was only there for about five and a half months. He was never supposed to be there for that long, um, but it is going to be DeSantis's third chief of staff in as many years. Jared, what does this say about? the Ron DeSantis administration right now? Listen, I, you know, I don't know that uh, I think people are going to should look into this too much. Obviously, people who are outside the bubble, uh, you know, people in Washington or around the country right now that are looking at Ron DeSantis as, you know, potentially a presidential candidate, they might, you know, look into that and uh, add it to the rumors about staff turnover and the previous articles that have been written about that. But the truth of the matter is Adrian has really young kids. He's in the same situation I'm in. His kids are even younger than mine. 
Uh, and you know, he was, he was a deputy chief of staff. He was a damn good deputy chief of staff, by the way, cause I dealt with him every single day. He was over DEM. And when Shane left, those were big shoes to fill. And so, you know, Adrian was the obvious choice to come in during the pandemic and try to, you know, not, not miss a beat, but th that was always going to be a short lived thing. Uh, because, you know, he, he wants to, you know, go be a dad and that's an impossibility, uh, when you take these jobs. Nate, what do you think? Um, I, I mean, I, I think this is one of those situations where like I, I haven't sort of personally done any reporting about it and really just my knowledge is limited to what I've read. Um, I, I actually tend to agree with uh, Jared that, I mean, the, just given the, the crisis uh, that we're in, uh, the, the burnout that comes with it and the fact that he does have like some young kids, this this doesn't sound to me like there's much more going on than that. Um, and I, I feel like you're usually pretty good about uh, hedging a little bit in your, in your stories. If you do think there is a little bit more and I, I didn't get the sense from that. So, um, you know, DeSantis definitely has a habit of burning through staff. Uh, but this probably sounds like uh, one of the more innocent uh, cases of it, but you, you know, you might know better than me on that. It, it kind of sucks for Adrian. Um, like I've, uh, here's a little behind the scenes. I've had this story for about three weeks. Um, it started to leak out. Um, and, I mean, I think even before that, um, and I approached him about it, you know, he had wanted to leave in August. Um, but then, you know, it just, the, the, the situation on the ground with the pandemic just kept pushing it back. Uh, I think he felt, I don't want to say he feels guilty, but I do think he feels like he he's leaving at a very difficult point. Um, and it is a genuine, you know, his wife is telling him he has to get back. I mean, I will say he was, he was set to go on a very nice vacation, like Labor Day weekend that he had to, he has had to push back, uh, and cancel like one of those vacations that you're not supposed to push back. Um, and so it is probably that. All right. So we think well, it and also, Peter, I mean, because here's the outside view, right? The Surgeon General, the announcement of the Surgeon General uh, also leaving, you know, came about, which you broke the story on that also. That was like a week before. So if you're an outsider, the Surgeon General and the Chief of Staff are leaving two weeks apart. And so if you don't know the backstories that, look, Rifke's contract really was up, there was no way to renew it without going to the, back to the Senate, which the votes probably don't exist there. Uh, and Adrian, obviously, always being a short a short timer, it just it, it was just bad timing. But they they both are the true stories as you have reported them. All right. So then, I think we have some ideas about. I have some names on who you know is going, or we reported some names on who may fill the uh, the void there. Let me ask you, uh, Nate, a, a different question. What what kind of chief of staff does Ron DeSantis actually need right now? Like put the names aside right now, but if you were picking someone for him and you had a great column, I thought this week about, you know, um, the Harvard law graduate uh, is not good at, at law. Um, that's worth reading. But if you were picking somebody for him, what would be some of the qualities he should, that person should have? Man, that is a really good question because I don't know that DeSantis uh, would want someone who, uh, somebody like me probably thinks he needs, uh, which, you know, would be, you know, someone obviously like, you know, you want someone who's competent and a, you know, a decent manager, uh, but somebody more than anything, who's just not 
uh, like a sycophant who's just going to bend over backwards to try to please the guy. Like DeSantis, I feel like is really in a situation right now where he's he's probably not getting a lot of uh, perspective from his staff. Like he really needs somebody who uh, would feel comfortable, like telling him the truth, uh, telling him what they think, even if it's not something he tends to agree with. But, I, you know, I, I don't get the sense that DeSantis really wants that. So you're saying the governor should hire Jared Moskowitz to be his <laughs> chief of staff. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I, you know, I, I think uh, hiring Jared in the first place was sort of a surprising move uh, from him. And one of those early things he did that people uh, seem to like about him. And, you know, that early Ron DeSantis was surrounded by uh, more moderate sort of influence. And, uh, you know, it would be really nice to get that version of him back, even if that wasn't somebody who, you know, I loved as a governor either, and probably would still be pretty critical of him. That version of Ron DeSantis is a hell of a lot better than what we have now. So that actually leads me to a question, Nate, that I wanted to uh, pick your brain on, because I've read a lot of the stuff that, that you've been writing about, it, it is we, we know that there was clearly a sea change from the first year and a half to when the pandemic started, right? You could see that change. Uh, it, was, it was decisive. But that, it also seems that there was a second change from the first two waves of this pandemic to where we are now. Do you, do you see that? And, and why do you think that is? I mean, I know the national media was so critical of Florida and the governor in the beginning, but the truth is we did a lot of stuff here and we did it first and, and things are happening differently now. Why do, why do, what's the cause of that? So, I, I mean, I do think there has been a little bit of a change. I, I think what happened last year, you know, as, and I think you're right that there was sort of a change last year and then a change like this year with this wave. I think part of what happened last year, the, the governor's critics and in the media did go too far at times. Like, I, I, I think it's like unquestionable that Florida was a little bit under a microscope on stuff like uh, the easy issue to pick out is, uh, you know, the, the crowded beaches, which we know are basically that's basically a non-issue with COVID. Um, I think the governor, though, sort of took the wrong lesson from that. Like, he seems to have really internalized it you know, he got this unfair criticism that doesn't make him like some unique martyr in politics. Like every politician's going to get unfair criticism and critical coverage when maybe it shouldn't be so critical. Like, but he seems to have internalized that as this, as this really deep wound that he's never really been able to let go. I think what's happened this year is he's sort of taken those feelings and combined them with just what really feels like very nakedly political kind of quasi campaigning while he's the governor. I mean, last year, last year felt a little bit more uh, sort of, I don't want to say genuine, but I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, and you can see this with his communications operation. I mean, it, it just feels like he's campaigning right now. Like it doesn't even feel like he's like actually the governor. Um, and that is a change from last year. I mean, even as, you know, as much as I, I disagreed with with some of what he did last year and, and his just kind of general attitude and tone about COVID, it it is like morphed into something just a lot more detestable. Do you think it's because he's looked at the numbers and he sees that he's potentially become more polarizing, politics has become more polarizing, and he's trying to turn out his base for the gubernatorial race? 
or do you think he has such little respect for Nikki and Charlie and he's already looking at the, the next race and the stuff we're seeing now is all about the 2023-24 primary? I mean, I think it's probably both of those things. And I would add in a third factor that I, I think he feels vindicated uh, having come out of 2020. Um, and I think that he just has sort of doubled down on a lot of stuff and, and whether it, it was effective or not. Um, I think that he really, um, you know, he took some of the headlines we saw last year to heart, you know, where, where does he go to get his apology? Like, I, I think he still believes that to this day. Is it possible also, and, and I have, is it possible that he is one of the people that was just psychologically impacted by the pandemic? Like I, I love to put politicians on my imaginary, you know, uh, couch and, and analyze them a little bit. And I just wonder if this was a younger man with a younger family who got cut off, cut off from his relatives um, living in a town that he doesn't know um, and, and with enormous pressures. And if he, like, like they talk a lot about mental health and the governor's office and rightly so, and commendably so. And I just wonder if, if, if he did suffer, not suffer, but if he did get impacted in a way where it changed him like, oh, like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, you know, of other people, people that we know, I have a lot of friends that, Man, the pandemic changed them. The pandemic made them more of who they were before in a way that maybe wasn't, um, may, you know, they were holding back a little bit. And I just wonder if DeSantis psychologically is a different person than he was three years ago. That's, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit reluctant to play armchair psychologist with the governor. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I do think at minimum, I mean, you're right that being the governor is an isolating experience, I think, when there's no pandemic happening. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, to the extent that, you know, he's felt like maybe he's in the bunker at times, like it must feel really pronounced. Um, and I do think, if nothing else, I really believe that he has internalized this criticism of him and is never going to let it go. I mean, I, I do feel like there was a shift um, and there, there's like no coming back from that. Like he, the, the, this media criticism, I think I wrote something close to this last year. It just seems like it kind of broke his brain a little bit. Like he knows better uh, and he's just kind of doubled down on some of this like really bad faith stuff. Um, I, I don't think everything he's done has been awful, but it, it's hard to give him credit um, just the, because of the way he acts sometimes. It's also not, it, go ahead, go ahead, no, Jared. So, so, so Nate, are you, so what you're really saying is that the media built this caricature of him and he decided, okay, if that's who you want me to be, I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to turn it into political gold on my side. Because there is something obviously on the Republican side that they like the guy fighting the media, right? And there's no doubt that if Donald Trump does not run at this moment in time, he's the standard bearer. I mean, I think that's clear. And so uh, is, that what, is that kind of what you're saying that he kind of took, he, he, he embraced what was being pushed onto him? 
Yes, I do think that that's a good way of putting it. I, I don't know that I would say the media created a caricature of him. I think that I, I think that makes a little bit too much of the media's kind of criticism. I think a lot of the coverage of him has been perfectly fair. Um, he does a very good job of spinning it into some grievous wound, but um, I, I do think that when he realized the coverage was sort of in a perverse way, like helping him with the, with the base, I do think he said, yeah, okay, like, fuck it. Let's bring it on. Um, I do think yeah, there's what, definitely but, an but, element but, of that. But, but why was, I mean, I, I want to get to one other issue, Peter, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, but I, you know, it obviously, we, this is we your were, podcast too, Jared. No, I get Just it. So I, you know. but, but you know, I'm a team player. <laughs> uh, and I, and I know you wrote all those questions down beforehand. Um, so, I, I mean, I listen, I, I, you know, you're saying that you think the media criticism, it was fair, but there was a lot of stuff early on that clearly Florida was under a microscope. I, I will tell you from the inside that the stuff that was going on with the national media, not really the Florida media, but the national media was so over the top and so incorrect uh, and so one-sided where we were getting picked on, where uh, where other states were doing the identical thing and you didn't hear a word about them or their governors or our results were better, but they were highlighted and the results in other states were not talked about, which were way worse. I mean, look how long it took for people to accept the deaths in the nursing homes in New York and, and, and where, they, where we were getting that criticism in Florida. What was it, do you think, that just put the target on his back what you may say he deserved it, he brought it on himself, but there was something that happened. Uh, and I'm saying this as a Democrat who was in the administration who didn't vote for him, okay? That he, that I viewed it as for whatever reason early before the whole thing with the vice president and you know, that whole, that whole you, know, you know, production. Uh, but there was something that was going on. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think that, some of it boils down to just the simple fact that Florida is the third most populous state. It's a big place. DeSantis is kind of a reflexively contrarian politician um, who, you know, in a, because of who he is, almost kind of invites coverage in a way. Um, and part of it was just a lapse in the media. Like I, the, the failure to, to be more critical of New York's handling of COVID, I, is a failing on the media. It doesn't mean that they should have been easier on Florida. I think that just means they should have been tougher on New York. And I don't really know why Cuomo got the, the hall pass that he did. Um, clearly that was a mistake. Um, but I think a lot of it is just, yeah, I mean, we're Florida. It's, it's a, it's a big place. Uh, fortunately or not fortunately, we are, uh, you know, kind of a microcosm of the nation or a place the media likes to keep tabs on and, you know, DeSantis, I mean, really from the moment he was elected, uh, has kind of been framing himself as a, as a national political figure. So, I mean, I don't think it's entirely shocking that we were under a microscope. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I tend to view the media's lapses more like it, kind of in individual senses. Like, I, I don't know that, I mean, clearly there's, it's not like these outlets get together and all agree, like, we're going to go super tough on DeSantis. I mean, I, I think it's, 
it all kind of arises out of organic sort of judgment calls. Uh, no, but make. they do copycat each other, right? Sure. You know, I mean, there, there's all the one-upping that goes on in the national media. Look, there is something to be said. And, and I, I say this because I, I do feel like I have an, an interesting perspective on all of this. There is something to be said. Gavin Newsom's facing a recall election and Governor Cuomo is gone and Ron DeSantis still remains. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I mean, I, I think that... Um, you know, in some funny way, I almost think the lesson that DeSantis ought to take from from Cuomo and I think to a lesser extent, Gavin Newsom, is that those guys were, uh, you know, seemingly untouchable and look at them now. Uh, I think DeSantis probably felt that way six months ago himself. And, and I think he would even agree if he were being honest that that's not where he is now. I think one of the things with DeSantis is the folly of his um, of his critics. Um, I think the media's criticism of him, and again, it's more the national, is just it's just so it's so poorly executed. Um, you know, obviously the sixty minutes uh, piece was just was just bad. But I I, I think the and in fact I don't think that my operation would exist if the state media had a better understanding of the center rightness of the state. Um, and so there's all this like boogeymanning of DeSantis on non COVID things like amendment Four, um, et cetera. And, you know, like Chris Sproul's expanded his majority in the state house by five seats and the Senate is now where it is. And those are democratic drawn seats and they had good candidates in them. And so it's like, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It's not even that I hate to say it, but it's like the voters did speak and they, they did, you know, they did elect a state legislature that was, you know, put there to do what they wanted. Like, you know, like people. Peter, this the, state the, went Donald Trump by more votes right. than, right. The people that vote for a cord bird up in House District 11, they are only watching Fox News and they are asking cord bird, what are you doing about immigration? They are not asking him, what is he doing to improve the higher education system? And I'm not saying that any anybody involved at any level on that is right, but they are being responsive. And I think that the criticism then of DeSantis for for pushing through conservative measures like the transgender ban, transgender athlete ban, or uh, not allowing uh, the felons to vote. I, I think that that does reflect the will of the voters who elected those people. You know, you, you don't see much discontent on the GOP side with its members. You don't see people getting turned out in primaries um, that much. And so I just feel like on two parts, number one, the media at the national level, their big footing here in Florida it, it causes so much consternation or so many problems for Nate, for myself, et cetera. Um, and then I just feel like politically, you know, the Democrats are so bad at their job. They're just so bad at their job. You know, they, they, um, they bring up issues that, you know, again, are just, it seems like they are meant to turn out GOP voters rather than win points. Um, and so that brings me to our, our next kind of segment on this, because I think, you know, I think the thing, I think the reason why you see Charlie Crist still close to DeSantis, as opposed to Nikki, 
um, is that Chris will not take the bait on some of these things. Like, whereas Nikki, and she might win the Democratic primary because of it, seems to engage the progressive left a little bit more and throw out more, you know, I don't want to say red meat, but blue meat uh, for the progressive left. Chris just does not seem like he is going to engage in that stuff. And he is he's running a general election campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think Charlie Crist has a, a touch of like populism to him. I, I think that he is a very adept reader of what people want and what people want to hear out of a politician. Um, that obviously is not <laughs> always been a successful thing for him on a, on a state level, but he is in, in his raw form, like just an incredible politician. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think part of it is he just has this, he's got a supernatural instinct for kind of reading the electorate. Um, I, I mean, I, it, it's funny. You would think that he, I mean, he was the perfect foil for Rick Scott and then, in some other ways, he's the perfect foil for Ron DeSantis. I mean, he is just where Ron, I think, comes across as cold and sort of aloof. I mean, Chris is is just, I mean, almost over the top uh, and an empath. Um, and I tend to think that Chris probably does have the upper hand in that in that primary, but I don't really know that one way or another. I'm terrible at gaming out. Uh, elections. So that's <laughs> just my gut feeling. If, if Democrats want to elect the person who's been the number one attack dog in the state of Ron DeSantis for the last two years, who has sat on the dais next to him and attacked him to his face, if they want that person, that's Nikki. I think Chris is trying to tap into that Joe Biden mojo, which is, look, the country elected Joe Biden, the Democratic Party nominated Joe Biden. And I think he's trying to tap into that and believe that's his secret here because he is the most like Joe Biden of probably anybody uh, that is in this race or maybe even in the country, quite frankly. Uh, what do you think? Well, well I want to ask you, can I, I want to ask Jared something really quick about that, though. Jared, you know, you you know how to win Democratic elections and you are you're unlike Nate and I, you have been on a ballot. Uh, Annette Tadeo is talking about jumping into the race for governor. Um, I like Annette. I think that she is a, um, I think she's, I think she's a better politician than she was um, when she ran as Charlie Chris Lieutenant Governor. I think the Senate seasoned her a little bit. Um, and I think that she, she would, in all other scenarios, add to, um, add to the dialogue, if nothing else. She represents a con community that, you know, is different than Charlie and Nikki's. She represents a uh, a demographic that's different than Charlie and Nikki's, and so I think that it's important to add her in. So, what does she do to the Democratic nomination between Charlie and Nikki? I mean, does she? Everybody thinks she pulls female votes from Nikki, but I just think that that's I think that's too simplistic. Well, look, I mean, it, for political gargoyles like ourselves, right? <laughs> we're 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 gonna we're gonna. We're going to look into every machination, right? I mean, you know, will she pull political votes from Nikki? Will she attack Charlie, the guy who put her on the ballot with, with him uh, as the potential lieutenant governor? What will that be like? Uh, you know, will she take the race to a slightly more South Florida-centric topic by talking a lot about Cuba and Dade County and climate change and South Florida? 
will, will she pull both candidates more to the South Florida-centric issues? The, it's good. Look, this is a numbers game, not that that's breaking news. I look at their, Annette has been a fantastic state senator. She's been fantastic, okay? Um, you know, if she gets 10%, that changes the race, period. She could get 6% and it might change the race. So Annette today was going to be a factor. Uh, this idea that she's gonna get one or 2% and not be a factor, that won't be the case. How she'll raise money, I'm curious about. By the way, that's not special to her. Nikki and Charlie are having the same problem. Nate, what do you think? What does the Democratic primary uh, look like if Annette Tadeo is in it? I mean, I think that's a very good question. I, so like I said, I'm really bad at gaming these things out. I tend to think that Charlie Crist is just the best known. He's got name ID all across the state, and I feel like he is in a lot of ways going to be the essential front runner no matter what. But I mean, I just don't have a great feel for that. I'm actually curious, you know, Jared, you know DeSantis better than most. Uh, I'm curious what you, I'm not asking you who you prefer of those three or who you think is the best of those three, but I am curious who you think is the best matchup to Ron DeSantis, like personally. Who is the, who is the one who can get up on the stage and, and like make the guy like make a mistake? So, you know, I'm going to give you two answers, okay? No, so, of course you are. Well, I'm going to give you two answers because, quite frankly, Nikki has does something different than Charlie does with Ron, right? So there is nobody who gets under Ron DeSantis' skin like I've seen Nikki get under his skin. Uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, she just gets under his skin. Maybe it's because she was in the cabinet and sat on the dais with him and she was the only one lobbing bombs from kind of inside versus just outside. Maybe it's a respect issue. I, I don't know the answer, quite frankly. But she does unhinge him in a way uh, that just gets a visceral reaction. I mean, go look at the tape. When he's having to respond to her, it's just a visceral reaction. Charlie, however, to your point earlier, right, the contrast of, uh, you know, EQ, on that stage is going to be massive, right? I mean, so look, the governor is a brilliant man. The governor's IQ is off of the charts. For those of you who have not spent a lot of time with him, the governor is a brilliant person, okay? He's a guy who literally can, can talk to Elon Musk on the same level. I've seen it. Um, but obviously, you know, the emotional intelligence is not up to par with the, with the IQ. And so Charlie's going to come in there and just exude personality. And so those two different, what I would say, is the top skill of each one. Nikki being the, the, the attack dog, the one that's going to try to get under his skin. Charlie just trying to overwhelm people with the I feel your pain kind of, you know, uh, you know, thing that Charlie does, the thing that's gotten Charlie, you know, elected to top positions and has kept him in politics for what 30 years now um i don't know which one is is going to uh you know be the winner of the day the one that's going to get him the angriest the governor that's clearly what nikki's been doing there's just no doubt about that now i think republicans I'll, get I'll, angrier I'll ask, at I'll charlie ask no question about that i'll ask the question a different way who does DeSantis want to run against who do who do i think 
he wants to run against. And I think he wants to run against Nikki, which uh, is strange in a way because you know that's the that's the person who's gonna it's gonna be the most partisan. It's gonna be the the the, the nastier of the two races. Uh, but I think he prefers he, he prefers Nikki. He's comfortable, I think, uh, in, in in a race against Nikki. What are your thoughts there? I, I don't think there's any question that you're right about that. I, I think a really partisan knife fight fits in precisely with what DeSantis has. I think what he's learned he needs to do to be successful. I mean, we were just talking about this a few minutes ago. Like he is double down on this, this like pleasing the base strategy um, for whatever reason, you know, coming out of 2020, he has just totally thrown aside any sense that he's going to be a, a centrist or have any kind of really broad appeal. And I think Nikki Freed plays right into that idea. Like that's what he wants. I, I think Charlie is a little bit more of a, a complicated opponent. Um, I think he wants that like sharp, you know, deep red, deep blue contrast. Absolutely. Can I ask Nate? I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to lose I don't want to lose the momentum about talking about DeSantis, but I want to ask you, what is it like in your neck of the woods where you have a Republican governor, I mean, a Republican mayor, um, but, you know, Duvall uh, is bluing, as people uh, like to say. Um, What's the reaction to DeSantis over there? I mean, because it just, there's, it seems like there's a, uh, there's a fealty by Curry, but then there's also a, 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 a every now and then there he will buck him um, as he tries to, you know, remain a, a I don't know, a, a statewide figure or an option for a statewide figure down the road himself. So, you know, I, I don't know if he wants to be 1000 percent tied to DeSantis. But what is what's the governor's um, standing in, in Jacksonville and northeast Florida? Well, I, I think it's important to go back to his time in Congress. He didn't, his congressional district did not specifically include Jacksonville, but, you know, he represented the Northeast Florida region. He was not considered a guy who uh, a mayor could pick up the phone and call to get a favor in D.C. Like, he just wasn't, he, he was not known for constituent services here. He did not breed very much goodwill with public officials here. Um just didn't like carry a lot of water up in DC. And that's not the kind of thing he was ever interested in in Congress. So, I mean, when he ran for governor, I, I mean, I, I think there was a lot of just sort of ambivalence about him. Uh, and I think that that's carried over um, since he is governor. You're right that, that the mayor plays nice with him. I think they get along personally uh, just fine. Uh, but the governor, I mean, the mayor is also surrounded by people who have had past interactions with the governor and, you know, DeSantis holds grudges like the best of them. And uh, I think that like the mayor's like political circle and DeSantis's political circle have a complicated relationship. So, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not all like rose petals between, uh, you know, city hall and the governor's office. I mean, they do work well together. And uh, yeah, I mean, the governor kind of needs the mayor here. I mean, I think there's a reason he comes to Jacksonville so often for news conferences. Um, so, I, I mean, I would say the perspective is complicated. 
Um, Jacksonville is a bluing city. It'll be even bluer next year and, and, you know, by 24 bluer still. Um, I don't know that DeSantis will ever carry the city uh, in a, in a statewide election. Um, And that certainly isn't lost on people like the mayor either. All right, Nate, we're going to wrap up with you. I give us, um, give us one more thing. Um, What's a storyline local or kind of regional for your neck of the woods that um, the listeners of this podcast should keep an eye on that may be impacting them? Um, So we have had a a very long running um, federal investigation into uh, an effort to privatize our uh, public electric and water utility, JEA. Um, That has kind of been quiet for a while, but I don't think it's over. Um, And I do think that uh, we'll, I think as, as the, we get later into the year, we'll start to hear a little bit more about whatever's coming out of that soon. Um, that has definitely been, I mean, a huge deal here. Uh, that's a, an investigation that does not target the mayor, but it's, it's kind of a, a look into, you know, the underbelly of, of some of the politics in the city. Um, so that's, I mean, that is definitely going to be a major storyline for us. Okay, we'll keep an eye on it. I know that uh, there are a lot of political figures that do a lot of work uh, throughout the state that are, I don't know, kind of like adjacent uh, to that story. And so um, we will uh, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, I appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, follow Nate Monroe. Um, great column. I, I think it comes out twice a week. Are you a twice yeah. a week or three, three times a week? Or? <laughs> Just twice. And then uh, you're at... Nate Monroe EU, uh, a good Twitter uh, handle to follow, uh, especially um, you've got a, a big mayor's race, probably, I mean, they're raising more money for that mayor's race, uh, quite honestly, than the Democrats are for uh, their governor bids. Um, so <laughs> keep an eye on that going forward. Nate, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, guys, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nate. All right, Jared, you and I are going to wrap up with two things. I want to ask you, uh, I want you to put on your uh, teacher's hat or your or your professor hat or whatever. Um, well, we're going I, do into labor. A, I do have an honorary doctorate. So. Do you really? I do. I gave the commencement address at uh, Nova Southeastern where I went to law school. I got to speak to uh, doctors, uh, future doctors, future nurses. And so. Uh, Is Nova you. accredited? Yes, Nova is a president, Peter. Oh, that's okay. brutal. Uh, and uh, I, I have an honorary doctorate. Uh, so I'm going to hear about that one. Um, let me, all right, Dr. Moskowitz, then let me, I want you to, um, I'm going to ask cream you, on just it. give me. Just put some cream on it, Peter. That's, that's just my, a little, I want some rapid fire answers on who, on some, um, like, grades. I want you to grade people for their summer, all right? Um, Val Demings. A minus. Marco Rubio. B, I'm going to go with a B plus. Okay. You thought that Demings had a better summer than uh, Rubio. Uh, Wilton Simpson. A. I I mean, I mean, it's just going to be A's across the board. Jimmy Patronus. Uh, A plus plus. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy had the best, uh, I say this with the worst thing that could have happened to Jimmy. Jimmy had the best summer. I think Jimmy has had in politics period. Matt Gates. 
Well, Matt, Matt, actually, if you had asked me that question three months ago, I would have given Matt an F. Uh, but I, but I have to think that that F now looks probably more like a C plus. Uh, there was an article that came out in Politico just yesterday that the, the, the story he told us about his dad uh, being uh, someone, someone trying to get $25 million out of him was true. Someone has been indicted over that story. Well, thanks uh, no. for that, Jared. But Florida politics broke that first. But you okay, know, that, well, so my apologies. Uh, so <laughs> and I'm just busting your ball. <laughs> broke no. the story first, but no. Caputo wrote it better. Caputo, you know, I mean, I just was on the Twitters because I saw it. But Caputo, of course, he's such a. As much as I hate him, he's such a God bless a good writer. So between, um, between that, between that part of the story now being true, nothing happening with DOJ on Matt. And quite frankly, the tour he's taken with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which some people might be nauseous over, but in his world, I think Matt Matt has probably moved up. I give him a C plus. Joe Biden. Ooh. Well, if you're asking me about this, the last two weeks versus the summer, I think Joe Biden was having an A an A plus summer, uh, but between the COVID spike. And Afghanistan, I, I, I hate to say it, but I, I think he's looking somewhere in the D, D plus C minus range. Wow. Uh, Ron DeSantis. So I think the governor, similarly, for different reasons, is in, is in that same vein. Uh, I think, you know, going into the beginning part of the summer, he, he was, you know, in the A range. And I think finishing out the summer, uh, you know, I, I think he's in the same place as Joe Biden. I think he's in that 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 C minus range, quite frankly, uh, I think the, the schools has been the thing that uh, has perplexed. I don't have any inside knowledge, but from the outside, I think the schools has been the thing that perplexed them the most. I think they thought they had that right on the parents option thing and the narrative got away from them. And that turned out it for some reason it's been spun that he's just anti-masks in schools and telling parents they can't have masks in schools, which is actually not the policy. And as a result of which, uh, I think if you look at the numbers on him and the numbers on Biden for different reasons, they've taken, they, they, they've, they've, they've jumped off the mountain that they both were on because they both had very high numbers previously. Yeah, I agree with that uh, assessment. All right, we're going to close up here with an ask me anything. I'm going to go to you, Jared, first. Um, we're, we're going to ask real questions on this one. Is Anthony DeSantis currently a good political influence on Ron DeSantis? 600%. 600%. I mean, I mean it, it, she, in the two and a half years I was there, obviously I haven't been there uh, in, in the last four months, uh, but there's no indication that anything had changed. Uh, she is a political force. Uh, she is a uh, moderating force. Uh, she understands com the comms uh, and the emotions of people and how you communicate with people better than anybody else in the orbit that I've seen. Uh, and I said this previous on a podcast many, many months ago. I'll say it again. When the campaign gets started, whether that's for governor's reelection or for what he may want to do next. When she hits the campaign trail with him, it's a dynamic duo. Uh, it just is. And he's better when she's there. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've been at both press conferences, numerous ones, dozens of them. 
and so uh, she is an X factor. If he gets to the point where they're traveling Iowa, New Hampshire, she is going to be an X factor uh, for uh, for people. All right, your turn to me. What's the best thing the governor has done in the last 90 days, and what's the worst thing he's done in the last 90 days? Um, I think the best right off the top is um, his emphasis on the Regeneron. It was something I was not even aware of, and now in the back of my mind, uh, as someone who hasn't had COVID, um, I, um, I, I feel like if I were to get COVID, I would scramble quickly to getting to, I would know that that was even out there. You know how like you watch the, um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical commercials, they're like, ask your doctor about, you know, uh, <laughs> about Viagra or whatever, you know. Um, I now know that like Regeneron is kind of out there or that the, and I get, I always butcher it, the mono uh, blah, blah, blahs are out there as a backstop, uh, even though I'm vaccinated, even though I do all the things you're supposed to do, um, you know, that that is kind of there. I would say, um, you know, the worst thing that the governor has done, I mean, I think the number one thing is the mask mandate uh, blocking, uh, however you want to phrase it, whether it be, you know, I, I just think that that just has polarized our entire state. It's clearly something that he's on the wrong side politically. If you look at the polling where it's basically two to one against that. Um, but I really will say, I think on a personal level, I was just so disappointed by his decision to send that letter to the AP taking up for uh, Christina uh, um rolling of the AP reporter. I, I thought it was an insult to the mental health advocacy work that his administration and his wife have done. Um, if he had spent it, it, it showed what little regard he has for the Capitol Press Corps. Um, you know, when I think about like Jeb Bush this week, polluting our Rick flag on his retirement, um, I don't think any of the press corps has any real working knowledge of the governor. Um, they don't have any real relationship with him. Maybe Mike Vasilinda does a little bit because he, he'll, you know, he seems to ask them a good question uh, when they need it. But it just, I thought that was so despicable on so many levels um, that it really, it, it, show, it showed the fangs of the governor. So that would be my, that'd be my answer on those questions. All right, we should change that session to tell me how you really feel. You know, it's so funny because it's like, like somebody told me, uh, well, uh, we'll save it for the next podcast. Uh, we're trying, I think we were gonna get in. Jared, I think we're in under an hour. Very good job. I hope you have a nice, relaxing, uh, you know, Labor Day weekend. Uh, thank you to all our friends in the, the unions that this holiday is supposed to be. I want to do a little shout out to Rich Templin because he's like the like union organizer that I know the most. Uh, he and I were in the Florida State Student Senate together. And if you would have told me then that he would be um, a, a labor leader and a agitator of Republicans and so forth, I would have said, yes, that's exactly what he is going to do. So um, I'm Peter Schorsch, my co-host, my second favorite uh, Jewish American, uh, Jared Moskowitz. Uh, thank you for joining us on State of Emergency.